welcome to Seth Barbie's On Podcast, from Startup to Stock Exchange. Good afternoon. So today we have a very uh, special guest joining us. His name is Dan McClory, and I would ask the listeners of today's podcast to really pay special attention for a few reasons. Most of the time on this podcast, we are privileged to speak to CEOs, and the title of this podcast is generally Startup to Stock Exchange, and the type of CEOs that we speak with are either startups, and they talk about the hustle, and they talk about taking an idea to fruition, or we speak to companies that are CEOs of publicly traded companies, but never before have I had the opportunity to sit with somebody that offers a unique perspective from the other side, and the other side being that of an underwriter. And so I'm very excited to have and to ask to jump right in, Dan McClory. Dan, why don't we start by having you give your, uh, your title, um, any uh, compliance disclaimers that we might want to put on the table right to begin with, and a little bit about your background and, uh, and what you do. Thank you, Seth. It's great to be on the show. So I'm Dan McClory. I'm Managing Director of Bowstead Securities. I'm head of our Equity Capital Markets Group and head of China. And before we get started, I just want to let you know the opinions that I'm about to share are, are solely my own. They are not those of Bowstead Securities. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Likewise, likewise. So, so let's jump right into it. Um, you know, as, as I had mentioned, we primarily, and my experiences over the last many years, have always been uh, sort of on how to grow a company. And, you know, I never really thought about it from the perspective of, well, you know what? What does an investment banker look for? Um, and I'll just give you a quick story, and then I want to hear your perspective. But just to tell you how badly I would be an investment banker, um, about 10, probably maybe 15 years ago by now, I had a gentleman come into my office and, you know, I get pitched all the time. I, I wouldn't even dare to imagine how, how often, I, I guess I should ask, like how often do you get pitched? Do people walk up to you all the time and say, I've got this great idea? Is that like a hazard of the position that you're in that people come up to you all the time and say, hey, I've got this great idea for a company? All the time. I mean, I could only imagine what it's like for a heart surgeon, you know, and somebody talks to them about whatever's <laughs> ailing them. But certainly when you have money for sale, like we do, everybody's your new best friend. Everybody wants to talk to you about it. Right. You feel bad for the pediatrician on the block when the kids have a sore throat oh. and they just line up his door. But, you know, if you're handing Absolutely. out money, it's the same way. So, so, so this is. guy came to our office when uh, when I was in the Edgar filing business. And, and I'm the low guy on the totem pole. We were doing SEC filings. And he said, I got this great idea for a business. I'm going to take um, flavored syrup and I'm going to put it into seltzer. And it's going to be a huge home run. And what do I know? I, I have no idea if, if a company is a great idea, a home run, or, or a disaster. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I like my Starbucks and I like my Pepsi. I can't see this going anywhere. And, you know, we were like, okay, good luck with that. And it ended up being SodaStream. You know, which is like a half a billion dollar company, and you just never know. And so I'm wondering, like, what goes on in the mind of an underwriter when they hear some of these ideas that are, some of them have got to be pretty uh, out there from your perspective. What goes on in the mind of an underwriter? Tell us that. 
Yeah, I, th- I think what what an epic example, Seth, of you know you having been exposed to something that becomes literally transformational. It's it's a bit different from an underwriter standpoint, and again, just for the audience. So, an underwriter is an investment banker who arranges for investors to fund a client company. So that seltzer company needed capital. And so an investment banker is hired to bring investors into the deal. It might be before, during, or after an initial public offering. And our job, our duty of care is to both the company and to the investors. So it's kind of unique. But I would say first and foremost, we are probably screening deals that would be a bit further along than some of the the wild ideas. Sometimes people out there like the neighborhood pediatrician misunderstand where we fit in the food chain. And, you know, people think you're a venture capitalist or you're a private equity guy or you're a direct investor. No, actually, we arrange for the capital that makes companies grow. And there's a whole lot of things connected to that. So with that in mind, when we hear about interesting opportunities and ideas, we immediately recompile them and say, okay, what stage are they at? Can we be of benefit? Are they qualified today or sometime down the road to conduct a public offering, to list on a national securities exchange like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange? So in our own minds, we're very quickly sizing up what we hear and what we see to determine can we help these guys out or not? And, you know, we'll be quick with fast and frank feedback, but that's really what's going through our mind is this look like something that's doable based on our capabilities. And our our capabilities at Bowstead are focused on small cap companies, generally less than a billion dollars in valuation, typically somewhere in the $100 million to $500 million range, and fundraises between five and $50 million. That's really where we fit and we see ourselves um, in that whole food chain of investment banking. And is is there any particular category of industry, whether it be, you know, oil and gas versus biotech or pharma, or does that not matter at this point? We're really generalists, Seth. At Bowstead, we've got about 60 licensed professionals across our various entities, which include Sutter Securities, which include a uh, capital firm, a uh, securities clearing firm, several broker-dealers. So of those 60 licensed men and women, each one of them is an expert at something. Some people are experts at two or three things. So although we don't hold ourselves out as a bank that's great at natural resource deals or infrastructure deals or application software or life sciences, we've got experts with longstanding experience in each one of those verticals. So we're basically open to all comers. And I think the common element is the size. That less than a billion market cap, that five to 50 million in fundraise size. We find a lot of the challenges that companies in that size range face are common to all. And certainly, you know, a natural resource company is different from a software company. But in that size band, We've seen this movie many times and uh, have enough experience to know how we can help them. Well, I think, I mean, I would imagine that that rings true only because, you know, so often you see the CEO of, you know, you can have the CEO of a, of a biotech company that's brought in to, to, to run 
you know, when he retires from that company, he can be brought brought in to to be the CEO of, of a printing company, and he can be brought in to to be the CEO of another industry. You know, in theory, if you have the fundamentals, business is business is business, and you know, if you understand how they run and you understand the mechanics and the economics, um, both from an operational side and then from an, an investing side, you know what you know what to look for. And it sounds like you guys do know what to look for. Um, I guess that's a good question. Are there like three or four key points that you would say break down into what it is you do look for in a prospective IPO? There are, Seth, and 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 we actually put it into into three pretty compact boxes, and and I'll I'll walk you briefly briefly through our criteria. So the first one really relates to the company itself. So I'll, I'll use a catch-all phrase. Well, we're we're looking for great companies. Well, Dan, how do you define great, right? So a great company is starts with management. So we're looking for strong management teams. We're looking for companies that have something proprietary, something specific and unique to them, whether it's a product, a service, or a solution. We are looking for companies that are going after large addressable markets. So you, you compile all that together and you check those boxes and you're, you're on your way to, to meeting that great company definition. And many, many of the companies who approach us can check, you know, two or three of those pieces that I mentioned on our first criteria. Uh, some can check all. And when they do, uh, then, then we start to take them further through the process. So, Dan, let me ask you this. Based on that first sort of set of criteria that you look for in a prospective IPO, you're talking about a great company, and in that, you sort of mixed in the verbiage of looking for great management. Let me, let me drill down into that for a second. And maybe this will come up later on in the discussion, but in a broad in a broad way, how much as an underwriter do you bet on the jockey versus the horse? Meaning, you know, when you see a company, do you say, "Wow, that you know that management team is phenomenal. The company might be okay, but you know we've got to be a part of that management team," or vice versa? Do you say? What an amazing product. What an amazing service. We're not in love with the CEO, maybe the personality, but that can be tweaked. Like, you know, how much of one is weighed versus the other? You know, that's a great question, Seth. We put a tremendous amount into the people because, as you and I both know, we've seen, you know, tremendous technology, tremendous products, uh, tremendous amounts of money even. But if you don't have the right people, you're never going to get the job done. So it all starts right. with the people. I would much rather have um, a subpar product, if you will, and a, and a superstar CEO or management team because I know they're going to ultimately make things happen. They can buy another product. They can acquire another company. They can right. merge with something. Right. They can do all kinds of things. So um, it really does start with the people. If You, you know, conversely okay. – you got the wrong people, and even if you have something stellar, you know you're you're not going to get off the starting line. Right, right. Okay, so that 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 gets rolled into sort of key number one of what you uh, what you might look for. So let me let you continue. Key number two. Yeah, key number two is is as or more important than my first point about great companies, and that is what we call investor momentum. So great companies, great executives, great CEOs can inspire and create and fuel investor momentum. 
but we need it to be present in a deal. And let me tell you what I'm talking about, Seth. What I mean by investor momentum is companies who have been successful at raising money in the past, who have not alienated all their investors, who are not totally uninitiated to the capital raising process, and who most importantly can get that base of investors, either current ones or prospective ones that have been circling the company, waiting for an inflection point to put money into the very next round. So okay. I'll give you a little more color on that. If a company comes to us and says, Dan, we don't know how to raise money, or we've had issues with our prior investors, they're really not talking to us. We need you to make this guy's rain $20 bills. We're probably going to say, you know what, um, this isn't an engagement for us. Because with this criteria, Seth, we really say that the fundraising is a shared responsibility. It's not all on the underwriter. It's not all on the investment banker. It is inextricably linked to the company. And this can manifest itself in many different ways. Uh, many offerings that we do have a minimum and a maximum amount, even some of our best efforts IPOs. And so a typical discussion upfront day one with a prospective investment banking client would be, okay, how much money can you bring into the deal? And, and our normal expectation is somewhere in that range of the minimum offering amount. And, and don't let me give you the wrong impression, Seth. I mean, it's the investment banker's job and the underwriter to bring in the investors. What we do is we help companies get money out of investors they already know. We give them a tangible liquidity event, for example, an IPO, and then we work backwards from it. So, you know, if an investor's been talking to a company and the company's been saying, yeah, why don't you invest? Someday we're going to do an IPO. You know, this is a pre-IPO round. And, and they're not very definitive about who's their underwriter. When's it going to happen? Have they filed with the SEC? Are they going through the process of NASDAQ or NYSE to be approved? That conversation is not very meaningful. And so we bring credibility to that conversation. We show up and let investors know in no uncertain terms that this IPO is going to happen. Because but that's a, we that's don't, an important point. we're going to bring in the money. Right. In other words, so, so many, I, I would have to imagine, listen, so many of these CEOs that embark on the IPO journey, some of them are experienced veterans, right? I mean, some of these guys have done this multiple times and, and kudos yes. to them for having the experience. And they know they know the, the route that they're taking. Some of these are, are first-time uh, CEOs. And, and I think, tell me if you agree, some of them are in sticker shock when they recognize that there is this joint effort required, right? I mean, I, I would imagine some of them have this this idea that, well, my job is to run the company. If I engage you as the investment banker, your job is to go out and, and raise me money while I sit in my office and continue doing my business and, you know, go go raise me money. And I sit back. And, and from what you're saying, that is not the case. It is very much a joint effort. And, and the CEO is going to have to go out there and hustle and present and, and, and do the roadshow, and it's it's going to take a lot of effort on his part as well. And that, that seems to make sense. Yeah, you're 100% right. And we always tell companies when they embark on a fundraising or certainly when they embark on an IPO, you know, to date you've had one or two or three different products that you're marketing. Now you've got a new product. It's called your stock. It's called the shares of right. the company. You know, and you've and you've got to R and D it, and you've got to product launch it, and you've got to market it, and you've got to sell it, and you've got to care and feed for it. You've got to do all these same things, and so raising yeah. capital is no different. And 
why why is this so important? You've been in a lot of investor pitches. We've all sat through meetings. We've all taken companies to New York and places beyond and embarked on the roadshow. So you start the roadshow and you're meeting with your investor the first one, first week, and they say, okay, great. So um, how much money have you guys raised? Well, uh, these are our first meetings. We'll know more after this week. Okay. Um, what kind of price per share, per share are you proposing? Oh, it's somewhere between 4 and $7. Oh, okay. I, I think it's worth three. Um, are there any warrants on this deal? Uh, actually, no. We weren't going to offer warrants. Well, I need to have 200% warrant coverage. Um, okay. Um, how about the board of directors? If we're going to invest, I want to put a guy on the board of directors. Well, we didn't really plan to bring in any outsiders to our board of directors beyond the ones we already have. So the right. wheels start coming off the whole deal, right? And we've all been there. and We've right. all pitched those kind of deals, and many CEOs have. Right. So you know, we want to turn that whole conversation around and put the company in control. We want to show up in New York or wherever else and say, you know, we're, we're doing a, a raise and it's $5 million minimum, $10 million maximum. We've already got five done. We could actually close the deal right now and, and start trading. But you know what? We wanted to show it to you guys and some other investors and, and perhaps you'll invest. If not, that's great. You know, follow us in the aftermarket. And by the way, these are the terms because we do have the money in and committed. And there are no seats on the board. There are no warrants. There is no difference in price. So, you know, that's the head held high, chest out, and, you know, subject to some crazy macro event that could, you know, cause the deal to go south with everybody else's deal, that deal's going to happen. So this is how sharing the responsibility for bringing in the foundational investors, perhaps half or more of the raise, in conjunction with the underwriter, puts the company squarely in control of their IPO. Got it. Got it. So you're actually enabling them, you know, rather than putting a burden on them, it actually, from the way you're, you're describing it, it, it definitely enables them to help them control, you know, the outcome. But, uh, okay, so that's number two. And you had mentioned that there were three that you can sort of um, categorize for us in terms of what you look for. Yeah, the, the third one is a relatively new phenomenon or feature, and it's one that you're very familiar with in, in another field of expertise that you have, and that's social media marketability. So all things <laughs> being equal. I love it. Well, no, I mean, you, you, you can see where it fits because you're doing this, right? So, you know, great companies, investor momentum, but now we have incredible and compliant ways of taking offerings literally to the people. And I'm not just talking about crowdfunding or Reg A+. I'm talking about S1 and F1 fully registered offerings that might use something called the Tombstone Rule 134 to compliantly make a broad audience of investors aware of this public offering. And it's not the absolute mandatory criteria element. So, but if I've got a widget company that has no marketability in social media, and I've got an app company or a life sciences company uh, or a fintech company who lends itself to communicating via social media, wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick the social media marketable company every day of the week. Interesting. Yeah, listen, I mean, in today's environment, people with, that have a story to tell. Uh, well, I, I think it comes down to two categories. I mean, you're still you're still going to end up investors. I imagine would be will be attracted to the traditional type of company, um, 
whether it's a biotech or a pharma, and if there's some sort of amazing cure that's on the horizon, you know, that is still um, an attractive model. But yeah, I mean, if you've got two um, widget type of companies and one is, you know, sexy, exciting and marketable, and they have the skills of storytelling, uh, and if they're doing it on LinkedIn or, or even video, um, and even if the CEO is um, skilled in his ability to, to, to tell the story rather than just show the traditional Excel sheet and, and budget projections and things like that, I, I totally hear the distinction of that type of company that you're, that you're sort of looking at and how that can make all the difference in terms of getting the word out. And it really can. It's just like my reference to the stock being yet another product of a company that's doing a public offering. These social media marketing campaigns have to be planned. They have to be funded. They have to be executed. They have to be repeated. There is no destination on the web, and there are many out there, including one that we own, where investors just show up every day and say, let me find something cool to put my money into. You've, you've got to bring that market. You've got to reach out to those investors and give them a reason to come find you and listen to you. But, but the beauty of social media, and I'm talking to you, Seth, as somebody who knows this cold, the beauty of social media is it's so much more efficient. And in our case, it has to be absolutely compliant. And it can really broaden audiences like we've never seen before. So that's a, that's a really essential third criteria that we like to see show up in our deals. And it, it really helps our investment committee get on side with companies that, that have a great likelihood for success. Let, let, me, let me ask you this. You had mentioned sort of the timeline that's involved in terms of planning both the marketing and just in general, the entire process of, of raising capital and going public. And, you know, I would imagine that in your business, you have to expect the unexpected, like you had mentioned, the wheels falling off and things like that. You know, I'm I'm always amazed at how, you know, when I was an Edgar filing agent for 10 years and you had an S1 that had to be filed at 530, you can always count that at 528, the auditors would come in with changes by the numbers and it's okay, you're an investment banker, so I'm, I'm going to blame the auditors that come in at the last minute. Um, or, you know, you've got these, uh, these, mad, just crazy, crazy chaos right before the deadlines, as if they didn't know that there was going to be a closing that day. So so in terms of the, the preparation that goes into an IPO, what what would you say is sort of like the timeline that, on a high level, what what's the timeline that a company can expect? Let's say they want to go public in theory in, in 2000. 20. Like, when do they get started? What should they expect is, is like the norm? Really if good question. Is, if there is anything. And I can certainly identify with that example you made where earlier in the podcast you talked about in the Edgar filing business, literally being in there on the ground floor of, of everything crazy that's going on in, in, in the deal. And yes, that happens. Somebody shows up late to the party and they throw a monkey wrench into things. And next thing you know, that timeline is, is out the window. But to give it some definition, you should plan on at least four months from the time after you are audited to complete your IPO. It could be longer. Audits typically take a couple of months. Some go three months. Some companies spend a month on a pre-audit, and then they spend a couple, three months on an audit. But once you're audited, 
which is the final piece of information you need to drop into your SEC registration statement, you're going to then start going back and forth with the various regulators. There's three of them, of course. It would be the SEC, FINRA, which regulates us as investment bankers, and your stock exchange, either NASDAQ or the NYSE. So I would use that as a good rule of thumb, Seth. And if a company is undertaking a pre-IPO fundraise on the way, that can normally be done within the same time frame. So you could be working on both offerings simultaneously. And that word I just used, simultaneous, is a really important principle. We address and execute on a simultaneous, not a sequential basis, meaning some underwriters, some law firms, some other members of the professional team want to see things done sequentially, like, okay, call me when your audit's done and I'll start working on the registration statement. And call me when the registration statement's filed and I'll start working on your underwriting. You know, we we do things simultaneously, uh, including ongoing due diligence up to the final closing of the deal. And in this way, we're able to conform to the relatively quick and tight timelines that I just described. So it could take significantly longer, but you've you've got to have a rigorous process and you've, you've got to be able to multitask. And as you pointed out, deal with the unexpected because you know it's going to happen. You just don't know what. Interesting. Um, let me let me digress for a second off of the business path, and I'm not expecting this question, so if you want me to edit it out, I will. But I did notice on LinkedIn the following, Dan. You are a three-time captain of an NCAA Division One cross-country team when you were at EMU. True or false? That's true, and EMU being Eastern Michigan University. Correct. So my question is twofold. Number one, do you still run? Absolutely. Very impressive. And number two is, do you find that as an athlete, still have that competitive edge in business? Sure. There's no question. And again, just to put my running in context, you know, that's about three miles a day. Okay, I'm not running marathons. You know, I'm not doing 100-mile races up mountains or anything. But, you know, I'll, you'll see me out there at 4.45 and 5.15 in the morning putting in my three miles, and, and I'll typically do that when I travel as well. But absolutely, you, you know this from being a competitive person yourself, Seth, in many different fields and many different endeavors. Those same qualities and skills carry over because, like we talked about just a moment ago, you know some unexpected thing is going to come up. You know you're going to have to deal with some change, some revision, some extenuating circumstance uh, in your deal, in your life, in your sports, and whatever. And so I think the ability to be disciplined at some point in your life when you're, when you're going through competitive sports and then later in your life when you just want to do it to, to remain fit is a, is a great metaphor. It's a great qualifier. It's a great preparer for everything that you and I and all of our listeners here come up against in business every single day. Well, I, I think that that's well said, and, and I find that, you know, the uh, the couple times that I find I have the chance to play basketball, you sort of see, um, you know, the guys that have that competitive edge in them, and it and it comes alive, and and you see that you see that bug in uh, in the business world as well. But you did you did mention something that I think is an important point for all the listeners out there. Everybody always talks about hustle and drive and and 
and the drive to succeed in business. You know, it's it's also a question of work-life balance. And, um, you know, I picked up on the fact that you nonchalantly said that you get up and run at 445 or at 5 o'clock in the morning. And, hey, not only do you do it at 445 in the morning, but also when you're traveling. Um, you know, I think that speaks volumes in terms of, you know, work-life balance. And so, you know, I, I'd like to wrap things up here for today, but also with sort of planting the seed to invite you, if you would, um, to come back as a guest for part two with the fact that I do know that you travel a, a, an awful lot. Um, you know, you're all over um, TV in terms of being interviewed for your expertise on, on China markets. Um, and so uh, I, I'd love to get some insights, you know, perhaps next time around in terms of, um, you know, international markets and, uh, and things of that nature, whether it's, you know, London or China. And so uh, would, you, would you do that? Would you come back for a part two? That'd be great. Seth, we've known each other a while. Um, again, I, I know a lot of the qualities that you have, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to keep going further and deeper and, yes, talk about the challenges and the, and the massive opportunities in doing business in this particular field of investment banking internationally. And I've, I've got to tell you two quick things. One is, you know, I, I do run three miles a day, but when people ask me if I, uh, if I used to run or run competitively, I always answer it by saying 30 pounds ago. So I, I <laughs> am not in the same spelt form that I was when I was captain of the cross-country team at you, University. Okay, um, but, yeah, so that, let, me, let me keep that in, in context. And the second thing is, you know, I, I, I go to China a week a month. Um, I'm actually taken off tomorrow to head to the Middle East. I'm going to go to Doha via Istanbul and then on to Abu Dhabi. But let me tell you why I'm going to Doha. The World Track and Field Championships are taking place there. And we've got a couple of our very, very accomplished alumni from Eastern Michigan University that are going to compete. And, of course, these are the stadiums where you will see the World Cup in soccer or football, as everybody else calls it, taking place uh, in just a couple of years. So um, I'm looking forward to that trip. There will certainly wow. be business involved. And uh, maybe by the time we talk awesome. next, I'll have been to China and back again. Awesome. Well, for, for, for those of my listeners who know me and know that I'm not a huge uh, fan of traveling on a plane, there's probably not enough Ambien around for me to uh, take a flight that far. But I'm looking forward to hearing some of the stories that you tell. So again, Jen, thank you very much for, for joining. And safe travels and looking forward to, uh, to speaking when you're back. Great. Thanks, Seth, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.